Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message and take part. All right, well, if you've been with us in our study of Acts, you know that in the last few chapters, the Apostle Paul has been falsely accused, illegally imprisoned, and grossly mistreated. And so after getting such a bum rap from the system, Paul decided to exercise his right as a Roman citizen and appeal his case to Caesar. And so that meant that Paul is about to get an all-expense-paid trip to the capital of the Roman Empire, the city of Seven Hills, the beautiful, famous city of Rome. And so Paul's about, in Acts chapter 27, to take a long journey by ship across the Mediterranean Sea, which I just learned this past week, the Romans, during the time of the Roman Empire, they would arrogantly say that the Mediterranean Sea, they called it our sea. <laughs> and so as you can see now from the map, and thank you Blue Letter Bible and Rose Publishers, Paul is gonna be transported from Judea at the bottom right-hand side of the map all the way west to the boot, to Italy, in the upper left-hand corner of the map. And so specifically, he's going to Rome, where he's going to be put under house arrest until he stands before Caesar. And so some of you have already read ahead, and you know that this is not going to be a pleasure cruise. No, this is going to be a voyage that's filled with danger and disaster. But, but you know, what do you expect? It's just another chapter in the life and the adventures of the Apostle Paul. We should be kind of used to this by now. And so today we're going to pick it up in chapter 27 and verse 1. Luke, the author of Acts, writes, And when it was decided that we... Okay, so notice the personal pronoun there. Luke has rejoined the Apostle Paul for this sea voyage. And when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Julius is a very prominent figure here in chapter 27. And so he's a centurion. That means he's got 80 to 100 men under his charge. And he's part of the Augustan cohort. Verse two, and embarking in a ship of Adramatium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, modern day Turkey, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonia from Thessalonica. All right, so who's on board this ship as they jump on board there in Caesarea? Well, first of all, you got a guy named Julius and he's a centurion. He's in charge of Paul. He's responsible for Paul. He's part of the Augustan Regiment, which was a military unit that was stationed at that time in Palestine. Then you got some prisoners. These are no doubt condemned criminals who are on their way to Rome in order to be victims of the games. And so if you know Roman uh, history, you know that the Romans had this kind of weird uh, a taste for blood sport and that, that taste was satisfied in their many amphitheaters um, there around the Roman Empire and there in the city of Rome. And so it was in these amphitheaters that these condemned criminals would be 
placed out in the arena and they would be attacked and killed, you know, either by vicious animals or by gladiators. And so some of these prisoners are on this boat with the apostle Paul and they're headed to their doom once they get uh, to Rome. And of course, all of that was for the amusement of the pagan crowds. Also on the boat, there's some uh, soldiers And so those guys are there to uh, help Julius, to assist their commander, and to keep guard over all of the prisoners. Luke's on board. That's Paul's personal physician, as well as the author of this amazing book that we've been going through now for over a year, the book of Acts. And then Aristarchus is there. He's Paul's friend. And according to Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, he also is going to be Paul's quote-unquote fellow prisoner once he arrives in Rome. Last but not least, the apostle Paul is on board this ship, and he has Christ's promise that come what may on this trip, no matter what happens, he knows from Jesus, I've got to stand before Caesar Nero. And so he knows he's absolutely gonna get to Rome. They all jump on this smaller coast hugger type of ship from Adramatium, which is a city located in Asia Minor, again, modern day Turkey, way up on the northeast coast of the Aegean Sea. You can look at your map later on. Let's look at verse three. It says in verse three that the next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. Putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Verse five. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship. So Julius goes out and he finds a ship, an imperial ship of Alexandria, Alexandria, Egypt, second most important city in Roman Empire, sailing for Italy, and he put us on board. All right, so let's take a look at our map once again. They began their trip in Caesarea, the bottom right-hand side of your map, and they traveled north along the coast about 70 miles to Sidon. When they arrived in Sidon, Julius, the centurion, allowed Paul to receive fellowship and love and care and probably provisions from the uh, the Christian community there in Sidon. And then they departed from Sidon in order to avoid the strong winds on the bottom of Cyprus. They chose to sail north of the island of Cyprus on the lee or the sheltered side under Pamphylia. And eventually they docked in Myra, which was located in Lycia, all right? And so in Myra, Julius goes and he finds this ship, this Alexandrian ship. It's headed to Italy. It's filled with grain and it's from Alexandria, Egypt. Now this was a big ship, a lot larger than that coast hugger that they had from Caesarea to Sidon um, over to Myra. Now they're in this large imperial ship and no doubt this ship right it can handle the rough seas of the mediterranean well we'll see here in a moment let's look at verse seven now luke says we sailed slowly that's because the winds are blowing in their faces 
We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to the place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. And so let's take another look at our map and follow this journey. It says they left Myra, which is the top right-hand side of your screen. And so if you see the region of Lycia and the city of Myra, just say amen from your living rooms. All right, so when they're, they're, they're in this big grain ship now, and they're sailing with difficulty almost to Snidus, but the wind is blowing against them. And they wanted to continue west toward Greece. They wanted to continue west toward Europe, but the winds were contrary, and so it blew them off course, and it blew them down to the island of Crete. And so passing Salmone, they eventually arrived at a place called Fair Havens. Now, by this time in the, in the chapter, it's very clear to the owner of the ship, the captain of the ship, and the centurion Julius, there's no way they're going to make it to Rome before winter, before the winter months. All right, so where are they going to dock during the winter months? Let's find out. We're going to pick it up now in verse 9. It says, since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. The fast, in case you didn't know, is synonymous with the Day of Atonement. And so Paul advised them in verse 10. He goes to Julius and the owner and the captain. He says, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. All right, so Luke tells us in verse nine that the day of atonement, the fast, is already over. The Day of Atonement occurs in late September or early October. And that's when the seas became very, very dangerous, especially in those days. And so to sail the open seas in October was risky. To sail the open seas in November, December, January, and February, the winter months, that was insane. <laughs> and so Paul knew this. By this time in Paul's life, According to um, 2 Corinthians 11.25, he's already been in three shipwrecks. Okay, so Paul has sailed the Mediterranean Sea a lot. Um, he knows it's time to dock this ship and to spend the next three months in dock. There's no way we should go out to sea. And again, if you want to look it up later, 2 Corinthians 11.25, he says, I've been shipwrecked three times, and listen to this, for a, a whole night and a day, I've been adrift at sea. Okay, so, so, so Paul, can you imagine him holding on to a plank somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea, floating and praying that somebody would come rescue him, not knowing what's underneath my feet, not knowing if there's sharks around me or not, all because of this thing called sailing. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker that says, I'd rather be sailing Listen, Paul would never put that on the back of his camel. He hated 
sailing. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I don't like it. There's lots of danger in the winter months. And so he goes to the leaders of the ship and he says, guys, this is not a good idea. Look at it, look at it again in verse 10. He says, sirs, I perceive that the voyage is gonna be with much injury and much loss, not just of the cargo and the ship, but also of our very lives. All right, so it's an imperial ship. That means that Julius, the Roman camp commander, has the last say of what they're gonna do. Not the owner of the ship, not the captain of the ship, Julius. All right, so what's Julius, the centurion, gonna do? Look at verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Uh-oh, verse 12. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, okay, so the harbor in Fair Havens wasn't that well protected. The majority, okay, so it looks like they're taking a, a vote here of the sailors, and the majority of the sailors decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. And so the owner of the ship and the captain of the ship, they go to the centurion Julius and they're like, sir, we're so close. We're, we're in Fair Havens. We're so close to Phoenix, just 40 miles away. I say we go for it. The port in Phoenix is much better, well protected than this port in Fair Havens. Let's go. And Julius says, okay. And Paul is shaking his head in the background. He knows what's gonna happen next. All right, so now look at verse 13. It says, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. All right, so imagine if my hand is the island of Crete, here's Fair Havens, the Bay, the, the bay of Fair Havens where they're docked, and Phoenix is about 40 miles. And so they take off, they ignore Paul's counsel. They take off and they're going along the coast and there's this beautiful, gentle breeze from the south and it's keeping them right along the coast on their way to Phoenix. And no doubt they're looking at Paul saying, see, we told you so. Can you feel that breeze, Paul? Hey, we're on our way to Phoenix. Now, what do you guys think is going to happen next? They ignored the apostles' counsel. Yep. The storm of storms is about to come down on these guys. We'll pick it up in verse 14, and we're going to read all the way to verse 20. Please follow along in your Bibles. It says, but soon a temp tempestuous wind called a northeaster, struck down from the land. Okay, so before a gentle breeze from the south, and now all of a sudden, boom, this northeaster wind, this gale force wind comes down off the island of Crete. It says in verse 15, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty, Luke says, we managed 
with difficulty to secure the ship's boat, the lifeboat. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship and then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, the Sirtis Sands, off the northern coast of Africa, sandbars, shoals. They lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed. You gotta picture this, everybody, in your minds. Make the Bible come alive in your minds. These guys are being thrown around on this 50-yard giant grain ship like ragdolls as this storm is hitting them from the northeast. It says, since they were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And verse 19 says, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And so from the map, we see this. In opposition to Paul, they wanted to leave fair havens and sail along the southern coast of Crete, west all the way to Phoenix. But suddenly, gale force winds blew down from the northeast, driving the ship south away from the island. And then they missed this little island. They're hoping that they can maybe reach this little island of Clauda, but they missed it. And then they're out in the open sea and they know we're in trouble. Now, ladies and gentlemen, desperate times call for desperate measures. And so this crew now, they're in panic mode. There's a crisis. They're freaking out. They're gonna do whatever they can do to save themselves. And so what do they do? At least four things. The first thing they do, Luke says, we manage with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. In other words, the doctor rolls up his sleeves and he becomes a sailor. (laughs) He runs over to the lifeboat with some other burly guys and they're like with difficulty trying to pull up this lifeboat to secure it on the the deck of the large grain ship. That's the first thing they do. Once they secure the lifeboat, now they gotta secure the entire ship. And so there's these cables that run underneath the hull of the ship. And so they're tightening those cables so that the ship doesn't break apart in the middle of the storm. The third thing they did was lower the sail and drop the anchor to slow the ship down. Because if you can imagine the Mediterranean Sea and Greece is over here and Asia Minor, modern day Turkey's over here and Palestine and Israel's over here, right? And Northern Africa's here. Well, off the Northern African coast, there's these Sirtis sands or these shoals, the shallow water. And man, if you get stuck, on, on, in those Sirtis sands, you could be miles away from the mainland and all you're just surrounded by water that you can't drink because it's salt water. And so they, they, they've dropped the anchor to slow the ship down because they don't want to get stuck on the sandbars north of Africa. The fourth thing that they did as this storm continues to batter the ship over and over, the second day, They throw the cargo overboard. And then on the third day, they even throw the ship's gear, the ship's tackle overboard. They did this in order to lighten the ship and make it as light as possible so it would ride higher on the waves. That did two things. Number one, it it kept them higher so that the waves breaking over the deck 
um, they wouldn't uh, take in as much water. Okay, so the higher the ship, the less water's coming in. And then the higher the ship, the less chance they have of running aground on a reef or sandbar below. Now, even though compasses had been invented by this time, first century AD over in China, compasses would not be used for maritime navigation until the 12th century AD. So they don't have a compass. All they have is the sun and stars. But because the clouds are gray during the day and black at night, you can't see the stars at night. You can't see the sun during the day. So these guys have no way to navigate the ship. It's like, where are we? Help. What was the emotional state of the crew? Luke tells us in verse 20. Let's look at it again. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope for our being saved was at last abandoned. Now, ladies and gentlemen, do you know what you need during a crisis? You need a leader. A leader is someone who goes against the grain and in hopeless situations, he or she stands up and does something. And that's what we're gonna see today in our text. The apostle Paul, a leader, is gonna stand up in the middle of this hopeless situation and he's going to boldly address these 275 soaked men. Let's see what he says. Verse 21, it says, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up, that's what leaders do, stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me. I love that, by the way. That's so human. You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury or loss. Now I know some of you may be thinking, well, Paul, you shouldn't say I told you so, but the truth was if the leaders would have listened to Paul back up in Crete at Fair Havens, if they would have stayed put, they never would have experienced the storm. Ladies and gentlemen, godly men and godly women are put on this planet to give godly counsel. And if right now you're receiving godly counsel from a godly man or a godly woman and they're telling you to change your behavior, you should listen to them. Because if you don't listen to them, you're headed to a storm. Paul tried to warn them. I personally feel like Paul's words are restrained here. After all they lost and all, all the injury, no one's dead, but they've got to be bloodied and bruised because they're being thrown around like rag dolls. I, I, I got to believe that Paul's words are very restrained here. He could have blasted them. He could have pointed to the seasick uh, sailors that are barfing over the side of the ship. And then he could have pointed to the bottom of the sea where all their, all their cargo and all their tackle and gear was. And he could have looked at Julius and he could have looked at the owner and the captain and said, see, you guys are idiots. You see, this is your fault. It's your fault these guys are sick. It's your fault that we lost all of this cargo and all of this tackle and all of this gear. He could have blasted them. But instead, he does make one comment. He should have listened to me. But then Paul goes into encouragement mode. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what we need in the middle of a crisis, not doom and gloom. We need leaders to stand up and to encourage one another and to build each other up. 
Look at verse 22. He said, yet now I urge you, I love this, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, and by the way, how can you be confident in a storm? You're gonna find out right now. <laughs> this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. And so in the middle of the crisis, instead of freaking out, instead of being afraid, instead of becoming negative and critical, Paul stands up and he says, men, take heart. I've heard from God. And God told me that all of you are gonna live. None of you are gonna die. And God said it, and I believe it. And that settles it. That's a true leader. Look at verse 27. And so when the 14th night had come, as they were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, and by the way, that was in ancient times the way they described the central eastern waters of the Mediterranean. And so being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. And so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. By the way, a fathom is six feet. Verse 29. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And so the map tells the story. If we can look at the map once again, for two weeks, the winds drove the ship away from the island of Crete there in the lower center of your screen. And so for two weeks, the wind drove the ship away from the island of Crete, across the open sea, all the way west, do you believe this? To the island of Malta. So on the 14th night, they sensed land was near. You know, someone actually heard and they said, is that the sound of waves crashing against the shore? And so since it was dark, they couldn't see the shore. And whenever you're getting close to land, of course, there's rocks. And so someone said, well, it's time to take some soundings. And so what that means is they just dropped a weighted line uh, into the water. And the first time they dropped it, they found that it was 120 feet deep. And they went a little farther and dropped the sounding again. They dropped the weighted line again. They found out, hey, this is 90 feet deep. That means we're getting close to land. It's time to drop the anchors. And so they dropped four anchors from the back of the boat and they began to pray for daylight. Now, isn't it interesting that sometimes people will pray who are irreligious, people will pray who've never prayed before, in a crisis. That's why they say there's no atheists in foxholes, so to speak. And so these hardened sailors, some of them no doubt irreligious, some of them no doubt Roman pagans, began to pray for daylight. Now, now some of them thought we have a better chance of survival on the lifeboat 
than we do on the larger grain ship. We don't want to be on this ship when it shipwrecks. And so they decided that they're going to try to escape from the large ship. We pick it up now in verse 30. It says, and as the sailors were sinking, uh, seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea, the lifeboat, under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, um, unless these men stay in the ship, like Julius, look over there. Unless these men stay in the ship, you can't be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's lifeboat and let it go. How sad that in the middle of a crisis, some of these sailors, all they could think about was themselves. You know, these are the type of, of, of people who go to the store, they buy all the toilet paper, they hoard it in their house, you know, so no one else can have toilet paper during a crisis. You know I had to throw that in. But they go to the only lifeboat that's available. They don't care about anybody else, and they're trying to save their own necks. Paul, he's just the opposite. He just keeps encouraging other people. Look at this now in verse 33. It says, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, men, I urge you, take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took the bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then look at this in verse 36. I love this. The whole atmosphere, the whole environment on the ship changes because of a leader. Then they all were encouraged. Back in verse 20, they lost all hope. And now, because of a spirit-filled man of God who steps up and gives encouragement and gives hope, now it says in verse 36, they're all encouraged and they ate some food themselves. And Luke then says, we were all 276 persons in the ship. And so Paul says, hey guys, eat. It's been two weeks. I know you're seasick, but you gotta eat. And then he, he prays out loud to God. Paul's not embarrassed to pray publicly. So he encourages them. He prays publicly. The entire atmosphere, the environment of the ship is now changed. And then it says in verse 36 that when uh, we had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Again, lighter the ship, the higher it rides on the waves, the less chance it's going to hit a reef or a sandbar below. Verse 39. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. And so they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, and then hoisting the foresail to the wind, 
They made for the beach, okay? So land, ho, we're going for it. And all of a sudden, boom, verse 41 says, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, the bow stuck and remained unmovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Okay? Again, make the Bible come alive in your mind. Imagine the scene, this big 50-yard grain ship all of a sudden hits this reef, and the bow, the front of the ship, is stuck can't move it. And then the back of the ship, because of the surf and the storm, is beginning to break up. The soldiers know if these prisoners escape, we're going to get killed. All right? And so what's the plan for the Roman soldiers? Look at verse 42. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But our friend Julius here, the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land. And I love verse 44. Ladies and gentlemen, here's what you need to know. God always keeps his promises, no matter how bad things get. Verse 44, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all... Can you guys say all in your living rooms? All were brought safely to land. Just as God had promised, every single man, 276 souls arrived safely on the little island of Malta. Now let's apply this story to our lives with the time we have remaining. And what we're gonna do in our application is we're gonna answer three questions. We'll put those questions up on your screen. Number one, why do storms come our way? And by the way, I, I preached on this four messages ago. Um, Still in control is the name of the message if you want to go back and listen or watch if you missed it. And I came at it from another angle, the angle of we live in a fallen world, okay? And so I'm coming at it now from a different angle. And I want to answer the question, why do storms come our way? Number two, how should we respond in the midst of a storm? Number three, how should we treat others when they ignore our counsel and get into trouble? All right, and so here's what everybody already knows. I don't need to even say this, but life, have you noticed? It's filled with storms. Literal storms, like the one here in Acts chapter 27, and metaphorical storms, like the difficulties that come into our lives. All right, so question number one, why do storms come our way? Well, answer, A, to discipline us, and B, to develop us. Storms come our way. A God who is sovereign allows storms to come to his children, sometimes to discipline us, and other times to develop us. Now, the classic example in Scripture of a storm coming upon a man because God was disciplining that man is the little book of Jonah in your Old Testament. And so God told Jonah, you remember the story, go to Nineveh and tell those people they need to repent. <laughs> 
or, or I'm going I'm to judge them. And, and Jonah was a racist. He didn't like those Assyrians. And so he runs from the call of God. He rebels. He disobeys the Lord. And because of his rebellion, what did God do? You know, God sent a severe storm upon Jonah. He sent a severe storm into his life, a literal storm and a metaphorical storm. And, and the next thing you know, he's got an all-expense-paid trip for three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. That got Jonah's attention. You see, what you need to know is that some God, sometimes God sends storms as a wake-up call to get people's attention, like Jonah. And that got Jonah's attention. Next thing you know, when the fish vomits him out on the, on the, on the sand there, and he's no doubt white because of the acid and, and the different chemicals in the, in, the, in, in, the, in the belly of the great fish, and he, all of a sudden, I, th I think the first word out of his mouth is repent, right? I mean, all of a sudden, I'm going to obey God. And he's headed towards Nineveh in obedience to the Lord. Right now, and you know this and God knows this. If you're rebelling against the Lord, if you're running from the Lord, listen, don't be surprised if a storm comes your way or maybe even a great fish as a wake-up call to help you get back up on the right track. If you're doubting what I'm saying right now, just ask Jonah. Now, there's another reason storms come our way, and it's letter B at the bottom of your screen, and that is to develop us. Okay, so here's the principle. Sometimes storms come our way to discipline us if we're running away from the Lord, but then if we're following the Lord, then sometimes the Lord in his sovereignty will allow storms to come in order to develop us. Ladies and gentlemen, here's what you need to know. Paul said in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, and I quote, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, did you hear that? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, we live in a fallen world. We're not home yet. The problem with some Christians is they want to make this their kingdom. It's all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of their own happiness. And they want to build their own kingdom, and they don't want any trial or trouble or tribulation. And when anything messes with that, they get all grumpy and upset and negative and angry. And they're carnal. They're immature Christians. No, listen, we're not home yet. This world is not our home. We're just passing through, right? And so here's the good news. John 16, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Okay, so Jesus is on this, this plan of redemption and we're in the process of being redeemed as far as this world will one day be redeemed. A new heavens and a new earth is coming. And so since Christ has overcome the world, what attitude should we have right now in difficult times? Well, James told us. Look at James chapter one, two, and two through four. He said, count it all, and I want you guys to say the next word, joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. Now it's not sinless perfection. It's talking about spiritual maturity there. So the idea is that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And so here's what you need to know. Our God is sovereign. Christ is sovereign over the storms that his people endure. And, and here, here's what you need to know also, that if you're a born again believer, blood bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, you belong to Christ. Nothing is gonna happen to you unless it first passes through a nail scarred hand. And so if the Lord in his sovereignty says, okay, let that difficulty come to so-and-so and your name is in that blank, <laughs> just know that the Lord is in control and he's gonna use it to develop you. He's gonna use it to mature you. He's gonna use it to help you become complete, ladies and gentlemen, because all things really are working together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Question number two, how should we respond in the midst of a storm? Here's your answers. A, with confidence in the Lord, like the apostle Paul, and B, with care and concern for others. In other words, not freaking out, not afraid, not negative, not critical. No, confidence in the Lord. And then B, not self-absorbed, not selfish, not thinking only about us. No, but with care and concern for others. And so the storm comes down on the ship. The sailors give up all hope of any kind of survival. And Paul you heard the story, stands up boldly because that's what leaders do. And what does he do? He addresses these men and he tells them, hey, take heart. I've heard from God and I have faith in God. It's gonna be exactly, no matter how dark it gets, men, I've heard from God. None of you are gonna die. That's the word that they needed to hear. Why was Paul so confident? He was so confident because of God's promise that he took to the bank. God made Paul a promise and Paul believed it. Look at Acts chapter 27, verse 24. Here's the promise. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all who sail with you. And so if you and I really wanna have confidence in the middle of a crisis, then we got to learn to hold on to God's promises. I've got two this year. And like you, I had no idea that COVID-19 was coming our way and all this craziness was gonna happen. But you know what? God spoke to me about two things and I'm holding on to his promise and I can sleep at night because I know that what God said, God is absolutely going to do. That's our God. And so he wants to speak to you. And for some of you, he has spoken to you. He's spoken to you through the scriptures the Holy Spirit has spoken into your hearts and so you need to trust God. Don't doubt in the dark what God has told you in the light. Hold fast to the promises of God no matter how much you're being tossed in the storm. There's another way we should respond and that is letter B, 
with care and concern for others. Now, as I said earlier in verse 30, sadly, some of these sailors could care less about anybody else on the ship. They just wanted to save their own necks. And so they go over and they try to secure the lifeboat and act like they're dropping anchors, but they're really dropping the lifeboat because they're going to jump in and they're going to try to escape. And so Paul tells the centurion. And so what a contrast. I mean, think about this. On the one hand, you have these self-absorbed, self-centered, selfish sailors who are only trying to save themselves. And then on this hand, you have spirit-filled Paul. And what is he doing? He's encouraging people. He's comforting people. He's caring for people. And so that's how we got to act in a time of crisis. By the way, I just want to personally thank all of you during this COVID-19 crisis who have acted like Paul. I want to thank those of you who've stayed positive during this time, who have not allowed yourself to spread fear or negativity. I want to thank those of you who have volunteered for Hope for PSL. I was so blessed. I got to volunteer at one of the organizations and there was a person there. And, you know, it's one thing for me. I'm an empty nester. I live at home with my wife. I'm alone. I've got, you know, some time. But this one gentleman was there right along with us serving. And, you know, he's got kids, little kids, and they're homeschooling those kids uh, at home right now. He's trying to work full time from home. Um, they've got a lot of pressure on them, and yet, what is he doing? He's at one of these organizations with me and, and my group and, and, and serving shoulder to shoulder. And it's, it's like, wow, man, that's awesome. I want to thank those of you who have rema remained faithful during this time in your giving, those who've helped privately, those that you know who are hurting financially, those of you who've prayed and prayed, I could go on and on, but here, here's what I know. Just like Paul, spirit-filled Paul, the Lord used Paul to change the entire atmosphere of this ship. God is using you too in your own little world with friends or family or neighbors or coworkers to change the atmosphere for Christ. Here's your final question. How should we treat others when they ignore our counsel and get into trouble? Answer, letter A, with love and encouragement, and B, gently restoring them to health. Okay, and so not letter A, hating and criticizing, and not letter B, condemning and blasting. And so once again, when the sailors ignored the Apostle Paul's counsel and then they got in trouble in a storm, he didn't hate on them. He didn't criticize them. He didn't condemn them. He didn't blast them. What did he do? He encouraged them. He said, take heart, men. God's going to take care of us. He showed love and he showed encouragement. And later he restored them to health. Hey, guys, eat. It's been two weeks. You need to eat something. Man, you're getting skinny, right? And so the Lord used Paul in a great way during that crisis. And it reminded me this week of Galatians 6.1. Paul wrote to the church of Galatia and said, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, look at this word, restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be 
tempted. And so the Greek word for restore is a medical term. It speaks of setting a broken bone. The idea there is please do it gently, right? If you break your arm, can you imagine going to the doctor? And the doctor walks in and goes, oh, your arm's broken, grabs your arm and, right? That's not the kind of doctor you want. And so if someone ignores your counsel and they get into trouble and they break a bone, so to speak, or fall spiritually or whatever, don't go in there and blast the person. Don't hate on them or criticize them. No, gently restore. If they're willing to receive your ministry, gently restore them. Here's why. Because ladies and gentlemen, but by the grace of God, there go I and you too. And so that's Acts chapter 27. Next week, can you believe it? We made it to the final chapter, Acts chapter 28. I'm not sure yet if it's gonna be one or two messages. I'm gonna see how it goes uh, this week. But here's what I do know. I love you guys. I miss you guys. And uh, can't wait until we're safely able to regather uh, together. God bless you guys. Thank you.